Is, that, is it okay? I, my mic went out. At this point, children in kindergarten through second grade are welcome to Primary Church. And if you're staying, I'm going to read a few verses of today's text for us to open. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text should be in your order of worship. And so I say to you, hear the word of God, Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the name, twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning as we consider... Um, this chapter, this portion of Revelation chapter 21, as we consider this city that you started to build a long time ago and yet a city that uh, is in the future for many of us, it's now for some of us, I pray that you would um, just open our eyes that we may see the gospel clearly. I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen and amen. You know, this week I was, you know, I read a lot and I came across an article that, that sort of broke my heart just personally. Um, basically, the article was about the fact that a lot of public schools in the U.S. apparently have decided to pull classics literature in, uh, in favor of informational texts written by the government. And, and books that were particularly singled out were two of the first books that I ever read. You see, I learned how to read by reading some old encyclopedias when I was a kid, and then there were the dark years where I didn't go to school very much. When I was in the army, I started reading. One of the first books I ever read, Catcher in the Rye, it's gone. My favorite book, maybe of all times, To Kill a Mockingbird, gone. Now, why does that, why, so why does that hurt me? It doesn't hurt me because I think, oh, you know, those books are somehow inherently good. It's because those books became part of my story. And you, those are the kind of books that I want to read over and over again. The same with movies and, and things like Lord of the Rings. You know, a lot of people think that I watch a lot of movies. I really don't, actually. But what might surprise you is that I, while I don't watch a tremendous amount of movies, is that I watch a lot of the same movies over and over again. Does your family do that? Mine does. In fact, this week, last night, as a matter of fact, I sat down with two of my girls and we sat through and watched the first of The Lord of the Rings again. I've seen that thing a hundred times. And yet I still cry when Boromir gets, gets just filled with arrows at the end. And every time we watch it together as a family, you know, we sort of pause it as we're watching. And Mercy's like, I love this part. Where Boromir, after he tries to get the ring from Frodo, he sort of, he, he realizes what he's done is bad, and he says, Frodo, Frodo. I said, oh, he doesn't say that. Yeah, watch, so we rewind it. He said it. I've seen it a hundred times, and I've never seen it. If you sat down to dinner with my family, and some people have done this, we could have a conversation that would be almost nothing but lines from movies or books. 
And we would all know exactly what we were talking about and you would be sitting there going, what in the world does that mean? Because the stories have shaped our lives and they shape our vocabulary, they shape the way we live, and, and they continue to. Now what's that got to do with Advent? Well, Advent is the one story that not just informs my family's life, but it informs everybody's life. And it, reforms, it, it especially informs billions of people's lives who continue to, to revisit the story over and over again. In other words, when you consider Advent, and we talk about, you know, every year, the reason we look at the, the, we celebrate Advent every year isn't just because, you know, the malls are full and it's a great time, you know, people are into it, and, and therefore we can maybe get them into church. And we'll talk about Christmas. We revisit it because the story of Advent is the whole story. And if you've been here for the book of Revelation, you'll realize that the book of Revelation and the whole season of Advent, in some sense, are one and the same. Because what does the season of Advent celebrate? At some level, the season of Advent is this story that we celebrate, that cel- that, that we, where we look at the things that are now and the things that are not yet. In other words, we're, today, we're at the end of the book, if you're visiting. I mean, we've been here a year. And so we get to the end of the book, and it reminds me of when you get to the end of the book. When I was a kid, I don't know what Christmas was like for you, but when I was a little boy, I can remember my family never went to church. So for us, it was all about the presents. It was all about Christmas morning. And I had a set of horrible parents who would never put anything under the tree. Never until Christmas Eve night after the kids had gone to bed. So you couldn't shake them when mom and dad were gone. You, couldn't, you didn't know anything. So every Christmas Eve, no kids in our house at least slept a wink. Why? Because you had no idea what was coming, but you knew it was good. And I can remember when they would, our rooms were such that, that they all opened into a single hallway and, and one of the parents would sit there. It was almost like trying to hold back stallions on Christmas morning. Because everyone wanted to get out there. You know, you run by, you stop real quick to see if Santa ate the cookies. He did keep going. And then you see what's under the tree, and all of a sudden, whoo, mind blown. Well, that's what you, when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, we get a vision of that. We get to see that, that at least in part. What, is, what does it look like under the tree, if, if you will? But also we get to see um, what it looks like now. And as we look to the book of Revelation, remember the whole theme at some level is that Jesus has won in the past by virtue of his death on the cross. He will win in the future by carrying out judgment on all who oppose him, and he's winning right now, in spite of what it seems like. And so as we consider Advent, Advent is really just a celebration of, uh, of what has happened in the past with Jesus, right? We celebrate the manger, and we look to baby Jesus. I read a, a great line by a guy named Richard Rohr this week. He says, if you never get past the baby Jesus and let him grow up to be a man, your faith can't mature either. And so we look at the baby Jesus on one hand, but what Advent also does is look to the future, at the man Jesus who will come again to judge the quick and the dead and who will make all things new. That's what we looked at last week. He says, says, Behold, I make all things new. Not only that, he said, John looked at last week, he saw new heavens and new earth. And as we get deeper into chapter 21, as we approach the end of the book, we see not just new heavens and new earth, but this week we're going to focus specifically on a new city. And if you're here, if this is your first time visiting, I have to warn you, I'm going to be talking fast this morning. Because I have to finish this book by the end of the year, and I, this is one of those weeks where I probably could have cut it in half. So uh, buckle your seatbelts, and uh, we'll jump in. 
The city that we're going to be talking about this morning is this, this city, New Jerusalem. And I'm going to have three things for you to see this morning. One is we're going to look at a vision of the city that John literally says he has a vision of this new Jerusalem that comes down out of the heavens. Also, we're going to look at the measurements of the city. That should excite you, even as you think about it right now, the measurements. And finally, we're going to talk about the inhabitants of the city. Who actually lives in the city? What's the purpose of them living in that city? And so first, as we consider the vision of the city, there's three things I have to point out within the first few verses of this text. Basically, it's a comparison, it's a pattern, and an illusion. Okay? So a comparison, a pattern, and an illusion. There's a lot of stuff, even in these first verses. And so when I talk about a comparison, what am I talking about? Let me read to you um, verse 9. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the, full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So what is, what's the comparison here? Well, the comparison is really goes all the way back to chapter 17, verse 1. In other words, what we have in chapter 17 through the end of the book is a comparison of two women and two cities, or two women that are two cities, or two cities that are two women. However you want to slice it, it comes up two women, two cities. Right? One is the city of man, the other is the city of God. One is Babylon, the other is New Jerusalem. One is called the great prostitute, and one is called the bride of the Lamb. Verse 17:1 says, opens, the whole vision starts by him saying, come, I will show you, the exact same language, come, I will show you the, prost- the great prostitute who is Babylon. And that as you, we get deeper into this part of the text, you're going to find that the, the city and the women and people almost become inseparable. In other words, this, the city of Babylon, which is symbolic for the city of man, is, also, is basically made up of those who oppose God. And the city of God, the city that's called the bride, that's made up of people who follow the Lamb. So the city and people are indistinguishable, and you'll see that as we go through this. Next, we have a pattern. And what is the pattern? It's this whole hearing and seeing thing. If you've been here throughout the whole series, what you've, we've seen over and over again with John is that he'll hear one thing and then he'll turn around to look at what he's heard and he'll see something completely different. So remember in chapter 5, he hears, behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered. So he hears with his ears that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and so he turns around expecting to see a lion and what he sees instead is a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And what do we learn by that? You see, John's seeing always interprets his hearing. And so when he hears the lion has conquered, and he looks and sees a lamb, he, in, in the twinkling of an eye, understands how the, the lion has conquered. The lion is conquered by becoming the lamb and giving his life. We see the same thing in chapter 7 of the 144,000. John says, I heard this number, 144,000. And we talked about that and looked at the Old Testament, that that basically is symbolic for the complete number of the people of God. So John says, I heard 144,000, and I turned and saw a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nations. So who are the complete number of God? We don't know how many that is, but we know that they're comprised of every tongue, tribe, and people group. So the same is true here. What's interesting is John says, the angel, notice what he says to him. He says, come, I will show you the bride of the wife of the Lamb. The bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he, what he hears with his ears is, come, I will show you the bride. 
the wife of the Lamb. Now, if you've been to church at all, if you've ever studied the Bible, what, you, what does the New Testament consistently refer to the church as? The bride of Christ, right? Especially, you look at uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 5, especially that the church is consistently and constantly called the bride of Christ. And so, what do you, I don't know what John expected to see, but he said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and what John actually sees is a city coming down out of heaven. In other words, so what does that mean? Well, that means at some level that the city of God is the bride of Christ, which is the church. So that's important because remember we're all about, we looked at last week, that what, what at the end is all about is God dwelling with his people. And so we're going to see over and over again that does God dwell in the city? Yes, but the city actually is also his people. Finally, there's an illusion here. And what's the illusion? It is an illusion to the temple because this whole book at some level, the whole Bible is about God making it so that he can have a relationship with us and dwell with us. So in Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 40 through 48, um, Ezekiel receives this vision. And this vision is basically about, you know, dimensions for a temple and that kind of thing. And John has a similar vision here. And what both of them are shooting for is this whole idea of God's permanent establishment of God's presence with his people. In other words, when you think about the temple in the Old Testament, the purpose of the temple was to make a place where God's presence could be sought so that the Israel could seek God's presence, the nations could seek God's presence. And as you get to the New Testament, John chapter 2, we learn that the temple actually is changing up a little bit, that things are progressing, that the old temple is passe, if you will. Because Jesus says that he is the temple. Remember they said, you know, who are you to, 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 to cast out these money changers and things? And he says, I'll tell you what. I'll destroy this temple and in three days raise it up again. And they said, oh, it took 46 years to build this temple. That guy's crazy. And then remember John gives us an editorial comment. They didn't realize the temple he was talking about was his body. That Jesus himself is the place where God resides. If you want to seek God, if you want to seek God's presence, you can find it only in Jesus. And then as you get to the rest of the New Testament, it says that the Holy Spirit has come. And so the presence of God is still present with his people and in his people. Remember, Paul says that we are God's temple. Peter says that we are a temple built with living stones. So the temple imagery that Ezekiel was shooting for in his mind, he was describing as best he could, John actually tells us what that's all about. John interprets it. And we know that he has Ezekiel in mind because it's the same language in verse 10. It says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That's very similar to the way Ezekiel sets up his vision of the temple as well. And just as a side note, remember that, that Babylon is also sort of has its roots in Babel. And so what you have in the city of man is man trying to build a city up to God. Man trying to reach God, man trying to make a name for himself. And in Genesis, at least, it's so ridiculous that it says God has to come down even to see it. So the city that man tries to build is never good enough, it's never big enough, it's never glorious enough. And yet the city of God comes actually down from heaven. That's the only place it can come from because we can't build something high enough. It comes down. So with all that said, um, look at the structure in verse 12. It says of this um, city. It says it had a great high wall and 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and at the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons 
of Israel were inscribed. And in verse 14 it says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So on one hand, um, this text, I'm assuming, has to be symbolic of something, but the question is, is it symbolic of, of just the opposite of what I would have expected? You know, as I'm usually studying for these things, I'm, I write out questions for myself. Why is this this way? And you see, on the city gates, you have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed. And then on the foundation of the city walls, you have the names of the 12 apostles inscribed. Now the question is, why is that? Because what does common sense tell you? What does it tell me? That, that Israel came first, and so the 12 tribes of Israel would have their names inscribed on the foundation, and the apostles were Johnny-come-latelys, and they would have their names inscribed on the gates, correct? But it's the exact opposite of that in this city. Why is that? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. It's because the, when it says the names of the apostles were inscribed on the foundation stones... Whenever you refer to the apostles or the apostles in the New Testament sort of as a whole, it's almost another way of saying the apostles' teaching. In other words, what's foundational to the city of God is the witness of the apostles and the apostles' teaching. And what the apostles' teaching was all about was the person and work of Jesus. And the person and work of Jesus is foundation to the city of God, not the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel and, and the, the church of God are, are actually right here sort of melding into one new thing. Remember last week we talked about kainos. In the, in the New Testament there's kainos, which is new in quality, or neos, which is new temporally. That what we're seeing here is that the foundation of the whole city of God is actually the person and work of Jesus, which is taught through the apostles, not the person or the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Are they important? Sure they are. But they're important to the extent that they should have been bearing witness to the person and work of Jesus, that they should have been being a light to the nations, and eventually they will be part of the true church. And so that's what we see here on the structure, is on one hand, Israel is on the gates and the, the apostles are on the foundations. And as you consider the measurements of the city, three things we have to look at as well. The purpose of the measurements, what are these numbers all about, and finally, the materials are pretty instructive as well. What's the purpose of the measurements? Notice in verse 15, it says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Well, we look at this in chapter 11. And remember, there's basically two places in the Old Testament that sort of tell us what this is all about, or at least are instructive of it. And, in, and both of them have to do with delineating things, right? In Ezekiel, there's all this measuring going on, and it's to separate the, the holy from the unholy or the clean from the unclean. But also in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it's about measuring. In other words, God's saying, you shall not pass, right? I just watched Lord of the Rings. God, God is like Gandalf. He's, he's measuring out and saying, within these parameters, the people of God cannot be harmed if they're within this city or if they're within this temple. And so it's about, on one hand, separating that which is unclean from that which is clean or unholy from that which is holy, but also it's all about protection and security. And so if you go through and look at all the things that are about the city of God, what you see is that it is an incredibly secure place. There's no night in the city of God because night is when bad things happen. There are angels who guard the gates. I mean, it's a secure place. So if you're a member of the city of God, if you're a citizen, nothing can touch you. So the purpose of the numbers, what about the numbers themselves? It's always interesting to me that people spend a lot of time trying to figure out um, 
literal mileage or literal uh, square feet of something. Let me read to you. Verse 16 says, The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and, the measured, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And then he says the walls were built of jasper and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. So if you, do the, if you translate these numbers into U.S. mileage, you lose the whole point of the text. In, in other words, if you say, okay, uh, 12,000 stadia equals almost 1,500 miles, and 144 cubits equals you know, about 216 feet, well, then you end up with this bizarre city that is 14 or 1,500 miles in one direction, 14 or 1,500 miles in another direction, and 14 or 1,500 miles straight up. And it's surrounded by a fence that is 216 feet high. And I know some people say, well, maybe it was thickness. It really doesn't matter whether it's thickness or not. It's sort of incredibly disproportionate and bizarre looking. There's a reason, do you think, or do you think there's a reason that John used the language of 12,000 and 144? Have you heard those numbers before in the book of Revelation? In other words, the numbers that are important are the numbers that are actually given. And what's interesting is you can play around with them as much as you want if you want to have some fun. So if you take 12,000 stadia and you multiply it times 12 angles on a cube, what does that give you? 144,000, complete number of the people of God. If you square any of the sides to 144,000, 144 is reminiscent of the number 144,000. At the end of the day, what these numbers probably signify is the complete number of the people of God. But there's something that's even more important because in the Ezekiel's temple where he measured length and width, this city is actually a cube. It's, it's, it has length, it has width, and it has height. Now, why is that so important? Because there's one other place in the Bible where you find a cube. And the cube that you find in the Bible is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies in the original temple was a cube. It had the same height, width, and uh, length. It's a cube. In other words, if you wanted to seek God, you had to go to the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, that was a cube. So the city of God is this full number of the people of God, but it's also the place where God dwells. And we also see of the material, it takes us even further into that, or down that road. Right? If you want to understand what this material is all about, you have to understand who this guy is. And I'm sorry, that's the best I could find of Aaron, the high priest, Sort of looks like a coloring book, but it was better than some of the human pictures I found. You see, what's important is not even Aaron, but it's that breast piece he has on the front of his coat. You see, that breast piece had, from Exodus chapter 28, we'll see that on that breast piece, it had the same jewels that are listed here. Twelve of them. And on each of the jewels was inscribed one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And so if you look at those jewels, I'm not going to read them all. It says the foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Jasper, well, read them. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, uh, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. So what Aaron would do is he wore this breastplate that had one of these twelve jewels on with the names of the 
tribes of Israel and scribe, and he would go into the Holy of Holies. Remember, only the priests could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. So he would go in, and by wearing the names of the tribes of Israel, he would, figuratively speaking, be representing them before God in the Holy of Holies. And what we see here is that the names of, of the tribes are not inscribed on these jewels, but the names of the apostles are inscribed in these jewels. We looked at that earlier. So what do we learn from this? Is that it, through the person and work of Jesus in the teaching of the apostles, that God's presence is now open to all in the city of God. In other words, in the city of God, the whole city is a holy of holies. The whole city is a cube. The whole city is perfect. And the whole city is filled with the presence and the glory of God. So whoever is in that city now has access to God. But it's even better. That happened in the past as well. Let me read to you a famous passage. In other words, it's famous even if you've never been to church because I'm assuming you've watched Charlie Brown. And in Luke chapter 2, verse Starting at verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the flock, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory shone all around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for I, behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So when we look at Advent... And we look at the city of God and we say, here's as we look forward to the, to the coming of Jesus and the city of God and all of this greatness, what we have to realize is we also celebrate the fact that this has already begun to happen in the person of Jesus. The angel didn't come. He didn't show up to the shepherds and said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you this day in Bethlehem is born a Savior for only the Jewish people. Or unto you this day is born a Savior for only the rich people or only Gentiles or only anybody. He says, I'm announcing to you good news of great joy for unto you this day is born a Savior for all people. That in the person and work of Jesus now, all people have access to him. All people can have not only dwell, be in the presence of God, but have God's Holy Spirit dwell in them. So as we consider the material, it actually becomes pretty important. And as we continue, I just wanted to say a word about the pearly gates. You know, when you think about the pearly gates, um, for one, it, again, if these really were literal gates, they would be pearls that were 216 feet high. I guess it's doable if you're God. But really, most people don't know what to do. Is there some uh, symbolism here that we ought to get? And this is one of those times where I'm not sure what I'm going to tell you is correct, but it's one of, if you want to have fun sometimes, go back and look at the church fathers and, because they tend to be very allegorical. When they didn't know what to do with the text, they could figure something out. But I thought what they said was pretty instructive, at least one of them. Why pearl gates? Well, first, pearls are the most, in the ancient Near East at least, would, would have been the most expensive thing to, to obtain. I mean, they would have been more expensive than any other jewel, even though I know they're not a jewel. Um, so they, to, in order to have pearls as gates, you had to realize that they came only at great expense and that pearls came or were produced only through great suffering, at least for the oyster. In, in other words, the, the, they would say it's instructive that the gates to the city of God, in order to get into the city of God, you only get in there through at great expense and at great suffering, but not yours. The expense is borne by God and the suffering is borne by Jesus, his son. 
And so is that, that exactly what these pearls mean? I don't know. But it sounds pretty good, I think. Makes sense. How about as we continue on, I want to look at the inhabitants of the city. First we'll look at the God and the Lamb. It says in 22, I saw no temple in the city for the temple. Its temple is the Lord God Almighty and, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So who are the first inhabitants we see? We see the inhabitants are God and the Lamb. Now, it's pretty interesting there because it says that John says I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty in other words when he says I saw no temple what he's saying is I saw no physical temple it definitely had a temple the temple was God himself you see the purpose of the temple was to enable man to have access to God and now at the very end there is no need for a physical temple I'm always amazed at how much uh, stock people put in to the fact that there will be a temple rebuilt and all these kinds of things when in fact at the end of the day at what the goal is, is that God would be able to dwell in the presence of his people and his people would dwell with him. And John says at the very end, so whether you believe there will be a temple rebuilt or not, at the very end of time what we say, if we know, is that there is no temple because there is no temple needed because all of creation has become the temple. All of creation is constantly filled with and in the presence of of God. And it's interesting what it says about the Lamb here, because it says of the Lamb, it says the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So on one hand, remember I mentioned that the, the fact that the city is daytime all the time, at least symbolically, tells us that it's a secure place that doesn't become nighttime there where people it would become dark and people would be afraid. But if the glory of God is the light of the city then why would you need a lamp? And it says the lamp, the lamb is its lamp. The purpose of a lamp is to, to beckon people in. It's to draw people in. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 12? He said, when I am lifted up, I will lift all, I'll draw all people unto myself. I'll draw all people unto myself. And here's where things get a little bit crazy with this whole city of God thing, because this whole time I've been telling you it's in the future. That in the future there's this great city that comes out of heaven and its streets are made of gold and all of these kinds of things. But right here is where we see that in this city you also have a clue to the fact that the city is actually now. That what's happening in the city is now. Because what we see is that the nations of the earth and the kings of the earth are bringing their glory into it. In other words, it can't be the very end because at the very end, you're either in the city or out of the city. And what we see in this passage is that people are still coming in, that the, that the doors haven't shut, if you will. And the doors don't shut. That now is the time, even now, that the nations are streaming in. Now we see at the end of the, this whole idea about the book of life, I'm going to come back to the nations in a minute. Right, Because he does say who's not in it, who's not in the city, or whoever is unclean, and only those whose name is written in the book of life. But what I want to focus on at the end here is the passages about the nations. Notice he says, By its light the nations will walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day. They will bring to it the glory and honor 
of the nations. What does that mean? Is it them, them bringing treasure? Is it bringing material things? Probably not. What it probably means is something like this, is that every nation will bring its distinctiveness. Every nation is what it is, in other words. You know, one of the, thing, one of the phrases I think that's been hijacked away from the church, or we, I don't know that the church ever used it, but the whole idea, of if you hear celebrate diversity, you know, when, you hear, when I hear that, I'm like, eh, I don't need any more that political correctness. I'm tired of it. But if anyone should genuinely be celebrating true diversity, it should be the church. Why? Because you see here, at the end of time, and even now, it says the nations of the earth stream into the city of God, and they bring their glory into it. So what that means is that at the end of time, there will be two people in the same church who might be completely and utterly different from other nations, and on one hand, they will be able to distinguish one from the other, and on the other hand, they'll both be on the same sheet of music. In other words, every culture brings its own glory, its own distinctiveness, and that ought to be celebrated and apparently will be celebrated. I mean, how can anyone give anything to God? You can't. But what's going on here, I think, is the nations are bringing who they are in, and each one that is brought in adds something new and distinctive and beautiful to the city of God. And that's happening even now. You know, in 1997, Judy and I moved to Seattle to start a church. We moved to Capitol Hill. We were actually we were sent there. Uh, we moved to Capitol Hill, and we were going to start a church, and everything I thought about Capitol Hill was wrong. I thought it would just be this, this unbelievably diverse place, and, and it would be this place where you could see the city of, of Seattle become more like the city of God. You know, if you've ever been to, to Capitol Hill, it's not the most diverse place in the world, actually. Most people look like each other. Most people sort of act like each other. And then we, Judy and I, I left the ministry for a while. We moved to Kent. And when we got here, all of a sudden, everything I thought Seattle would be is what I was living right in the midst of. You know that more than 25% of the people in Kent, Washington, are not even born in the United States. Did you know that? First service, I made the comment that there were 98 languages or 91 languages in the, the Kent School District. And someone corrected me after and said there are 130 now. I didn't know there were that many languages, to be honest with you. Yet all of these people, in other words, the nations are right here around us. And so the question is, is do you build a church that, that actually not just mirrors that and caters to that, but a church that actually celebrates that and is, uh, and is able to bring the nations in? And what that means, as I say with regard to music and everyone else, that means that everyone has to give up a little so that everyone can also have a lot of each other. What does it mean? And we'll talk about that more in the, the coming months. What, is it, what should our church look like? How should it look? All of these kind of things. But at the end of the day, the question is, uh, are we going to be a place where the nations come in and, and share their glory and the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city of God, or are we not? You know, living in the United States, living in the Pacific Northwest especially, we can, we can get a pretty narrow view of the world. And most of you know, if you've been a member of our church, I've been to Ethiopia a couple times in the past three years. The last time I went to Ethiopia, um, I went to train people, uh, just in the, I train them in the Bible, and I think there was anywhere between 10 and 15 people, depending on the day, who spoke Somali, Amharic, uh, Guruk, and Afar, if I remember correctly. I went through three translators a day, right? Talking fast wears other people out too. 
And the last time I was there, I was teaching the book of Genesis, and I got to chapter 15, and as I was teaching chapter 15, some of you saw a video of this, I was teaching chapter 15 about Abraham being justified by faith, and I started teaching on justification by faith, that God takes all of our badness and puts it on Jesus, and all of his goodness and puts it on us. And as I was teaching, one of the men stood up and said in broken English, I am overwhelmed by the grace of God. I must praise him. And he just started speaking in tongues. To me it was tongues. It was Somali. And he just started speaking and he started praising God. And what did I do? I'm Presbyterian, so I didn't do anything. I sat there wondering, how could someone just do that? (laughs) But it opened my eyes. Made me think, am I overwhelmed by the love of God? What would it be like if in our church, has anyone ever been so overwhelmed by the love of God that they just had to stand up and say, you know what? Time out, pastor. We must praise God now. And then do it in a different language. I mean, that's amazing to me. You see, because at the end of time, the city of God will be like that. The city of God will be full of people that aren't just white, that aren't just Asian, that aren't just black, that aren't just anything. They are everything. And they will be singing some version of, I am overwhelmed by the love of God. I must praise Him now. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that more and more you would make our church uh, look like this church that we see in the city of God. That you, you, would, you would make our church be one where the nations stream in, and I pray that you would uh, make our church also where the nations stream out to tell other folks about the good news of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen and amen.